Good morning, Courtright. I'm sure you remember me, but it's my privilege this morning to introduce to you our guest preachers. About three or four months ago, some of us were privileged. We received an amazing video. And the video was about Robin and Philip Cerez and their family, an amazing family, a family that has been here with us several or many times through the years as the praise team. They have uh, shared with us an enormous faith in Jesus Christ, an enormous presence in their family, and just uh, an incredible story of living their faith. And so this morning we are just privileged to have you with us, and we're so delighted to have you with us. We were thinking about doing the video to show you because we weren't sure we could get you in live. But this is so wonderful. We, we have them able to be with us, and we're so blessed to have you. Now, a few weeks ago, um, we were talking about receiving blessing in prayer and putting our hands this way. This morning, as I pray for our guests, I want you to turn your hands this way and put them forward in this prayer as we bless them in this time of worship together. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a beautiful, beautiful family. They have given so much. Let them receive from us this morning a blessing. Through us, may the Holy Spirit anoint them and be present with them. In Paul's Corinthians correspondence, there is a beautiful image that we are jars of clay. And those jars hold the magnificent gift of life, the spirit that God put within us. And this couple show that spirit in a beautiful, beautiful way. Though their jars may not be pristine, the spirit within them is. Let it flow, Lord. Let their message touch our lives. And now as you hold your hands, there is another beautiful passage in Jeremiah that says God is the potter, and he makes the jar. And so we pray for you, Philip. We pray God's blessing upon you. And if it is his will that he reshapes your pot, may it be so. May his love sustain you and hold you now and evermore. And may you know this congregation loves you and will love you more once we've heard your message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh boy, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I'm going to turn my iPad back on. And say good morning. <laughs> we are so thankful to be here and spend this time with you today. We don't feel like strangers since you house most of our kids. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, especially Fiona, Daniel, and Pip are really bummed that it was today because they are on a plane getting a much needed vacation, but they are with us heart and soul. <laughs> 
Good morning. Hello, friends. It's great to be with you today. Thank you for the opportunity to testify to the goodness of God. We know we are in good company, as you are a church that loves to worship and pray together. Philip and I serve with a global mission agency called Multiply, and our passion has been to call a generation to surrender to Jesus and train them in kingdom mission here and around the world. But in this last season, God's called us to a new assignment. As you may know, I was diagnosed three years ago. I have lost my voice and the use and strength in my hands, arms and legs. I am thankful that I don't have any pain, but I can get stir-crazy in this chair. Since I lost my voice, Robin has been speaking what I've written. Mostly. She sounds a lot better anyway. We will go back and forth between us sharing. We hope you can follow along. So ALS is a degenerative neurological disease where the brain gradually stops communicating to the muscles. There is no cure. Eventually, the muscles that support breathing stop functioning. And our only hope of healing is God's powerful intervention, and we are full of faith in a God who heals. And the prayers of so many have made a profound difference. I can't emphasize that enough in how we're journeying together towards Jesus and with Jesus. And if you've been praying for us, and I know many of you have, and we have received a beautiful prayer shawl and prayer uh, lap quilt from the amazing ministry of quilting and knitting here, and we're so grateful. Thank you so much for those of you who have prayed for us. And I just want to add, we can share this morning not because we have it all figured out, or because we find it easy, or we've overcome all the obstacles. Uh, it is a hard road. We are heartbroken, and we struggle. But we can share this morning because Psalm 46 and many powerful scriptures and promises is true. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He's holding us fast, and we're learning how true this is. So it's really a morning about God. And although there are many, many themes that have stirred over these last three years, um, there's one overarching, underpinning phrase that we just can't get away from. Every time we share, we're like, is there something different, Lord? And it's like, no, nah, we're pretty stuck on this. <laughs> um, and it's what God's doing, or really where he's keeping us. And that's that scripture in uh, Colossians 3.3, we're hidden with Christ in God. And because of this, there is joy. We want to testify to joy this morning and how we have been experiencing it in the middle of difficult times. Grief, pain, and sorrow are all real, but so is God, who generates a joy in the hearts of believers that transcend circumstances and sustains us through hardship. So we want to anchor our time today in this premise 
and a promise. And the premise from Colossians 3.3 where Paul writes, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. We're hidden with Christ in God. Since the beginning of this crisis, we have been... My turn. (laughs) The sky. (laughs) We are hidden with Christ in God. And that's where all our hope and joy comes from. From this place, this position of being tucked into the powerful presence of God. And Paul says that's our real life. Your real life. Where we live if we belong to God. And in that safe place, there is joy. Discovering joy. Since the beginning of this crisis... We have been surprised by joy. Sometimes we look at each other amazed. Why do we have all this joy? Somehow alongside the weighty grief of this disease, there are these pulsing embers of joy getting stronger and stronger. We wonder, how is God doing this? It's so counterintuitive. C.S. Lewis said pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Well we have heard God shouting. Over here, I am here. Which leads to the promise, we don't suffer alone. God is with us, Emmanuel. Instead of removing pain, and from life's equation, he adds a variable, his presence. And his presence brings joy. And Philip continues, but with my voice, this season isn't easy. We carry this deep sadness, but we don't carry it alone. The grief of possibly losing years with my family is gut-wrenching, but his peace overrides. I may never reach the milestones in mission I had hoped for, but I don't despair. I am hidden with Christ in God. In fact, that's it. He surrounds me. When I trust in God, there is no despair. When we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, we still experience grief and sadness, but without despair, they have lost their sting. Jesus said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. I've been discovering that God's companionship is so much more palpable when it's all you have left. I call it the terrifying delight of losing everything. The trauma of this disease has left me with only the capacity to collapse in the arms of my Heavenly Father and ask myself, is it enough? Enough to satisfy? Enough to fill my identity? Enough to fuel my hope? Enough to direct my rest. I can't perform for his attention. I can't be strong for his approval. I have nothing left to bargain with. Yet I hear his voice, his invitation from Isaiah 55. Come, Philip. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55, 1. 
I'm thankful that even if everything else is lost, we're left with the love and acceptance of God, our Father. It is untouchable. He's with us. He knows just what we need, and he wants to provide it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for his spirit tells me so. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, let brilliant light shine out of darkness, is the one who has cascaded this light into us. The brilliant dawning light of the glorious knowledge of God as we gaze into the face of Jesus Christ. This verse says that knowing God through Jesus is the light in our darkness and he is the provider of that light. It's as powerful and as disruptive as creation was. It's a fountain of hope filling our souls, overwhelming life's cruelest circumstances with his love. When the knowledge of God is embedded in us through Jesus, when we know him because we have said yes to Jesus, our hearts are filled with trust and courage. We can't help it because we're hidden with Christ in God. But we do have a section called Losing Joy. Because let's face it, this isn't always our experience. And for many reasons. So this is, this is me. This is Robin now. Uh, maybe our relationship with God has lots of questions and we're struggling with doubt. Or the voice of culture around us and the distractions that we escape to are crowding out his voice. Or we're so busy managing our situations that we lose the sense of God's active, engaged presence wanting to fill us with strength and his light. There are days when I've just put my head down and done the work it takes to take care of Philip. He has a lot of work. And at the end of the day, I feel spent, uh, emptied, like I have nothing left. Know what I mean? Maybe I am the only one who gets to the end of the day and you're just picking yourself up off the floor. And I've needed to confess to Jesus that I missed. I missed him. I missed him that day. I missed all the loving help and fueling he wanted to provide me. Thankfully, it doesn't take long before his voice breaks in, daughter, you aren't alone. In fact, as you care for Philip, I'm right here caring for you. I'm your full-time caregiver. He's our full-time caregiver. What about other joy stealers? Maybe we're stuck in sin. There are broken patterns in our lives that we haven't confessed to Jesus, and we haven't experienced that sweet, sweet gift of forgiveness. Living with all our brokenness on our backs makes it hard to experience joy. It's heavy. And maybe we've lost joy because we can't imagine God would let this happen to us. I'm in ministry. God. And instead we find ourselves kind of offended and we blame God rather than trusting him. Why me? Philip says, 
Where do we get the idea that we can avoid trouble and sorrow? Why are we shocked or irate when it comes to us? How can we be so blind to the depth of human suffering throughout history, and all around us, to believers and non-believers alike, and think we get a pass? Suffering is everywhere. Before this disease I was a part of a sort of privileged elite. The club that knows little of suffering and has lived a pretty charmed life. This left me naive and blind to the pain all around me. I have had to confess that. Jesus declares hard times will be our reality and promises to bring peace, courage and hope. Philip continues, um, For in this unbelieving world you will experience trouble and sorrows, but you must be courageous, for I have conquered the world, says Jesus in John 16, 33. If this is true, how do we have the audacity to put God on trial for every hurt or threaten to disavow his very existence every time a crisis comes? When we choose to blame God rather than trust him, it prevents joy from germinating in our hearts. Let's repent of a weak faith that is quick to blame and slow to trust. Jesus has overcome this world's pain, and he wants to share this peace with us and through us. He can carry our grief and sorrows because by his wounds we're healed. That's right out of Isaiah 53. And Philip also says, there's another temptation that's definitely a joy killer, choosing to be the victim. Mm. The fight to become a victim is more real than you can imagine. The lure of being the victim shows up in a thousand temptations to blame God, envy others, especially when they talk about plans and future dreams, and even to leverage the disease for attention and favors. This is a dangerous path that bonds us with the illness and distances us from God's grace and power mm. and joy. So early on, says Philip, I had to do business with God about this, and with his help, I rejected it and declared the truth, which I still declare today. I may have ALS, but ALS does not have me. It does not define me. I will not subjugate myself to it in any way. Amen. 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 And I, Robin, will add, because choosing to be a victim means choosing a false identity instead of the joy of the Lord. And when we do that, our lives reflect, our lives reflect the choices we make. It seems like the doors to comfort, blessing, encouragement, and joy close. But when we live with our identity rooted in Jesus and who he says we are, it's powerful. We develop huge spiritual muscles. I have developed some physical muscles too, carrying him, no, well, supporting him, but I'm much more interested in the spiritual muscles today. <laughs> and it especially affects how we pray. We don't pray as victims. We pray with confidence and expectation because we know who we are and who we belong to. We pray with freedom to trust God's plan purpose, and timing 
no matter what. We pray as Jesus taught us to deliver us from the evil one. We push back the darkness. We declare Christ's authority over the devil, over ALS, over his body, even over medical intervention and the people that God brings into our lives to support and help us. We pray Christ's name and authority over them all. Everything submits to him and his plan. Sustaining joy. These days I stand on the foundations of my identity of being redeemed by Jesus, adopted by Father God, and resuscitated by the Holy Spirit. This is the source of everything. We are learning on this journey where to find hope, strength, and joy. Where to find life, where to discover real life. My usual sources are rapidly failing, disappearing actually. I've lost the muscles to embrace the present, and the time to dream about the future. Most of the things that excited me in the past can't help me now. Leisure, sport, travel, personal ambition have all gone bankrupt. So where, when do I invest? Philip continues, well... If you're looking for a deep dive, there's so much more in the 2 Corinthians 4 passage, but be warned, Paul is giving a masterclass with some radical claims. Paul calls us to shift our dependency from what is temporal to what is eternal, to engage what is unseen rather than what is seen. 2 Corinthians 4. So no wonder we don't give up. For even though our outer person gradually wears out, our inner being is renewed every single day. We view our slight, short-lived troubles in the light of eternity. We see our difficulties as the substance that produces for us an eternal, weighty glory far beyond all comparison because we don't focus our attention on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but the unseen realm is eternal. So easy to say, so hard to live into. This eternal weighty glory is so important to Paul in the middle of his suffering. It's not just heaven, but a reward in heaven for his faithfulness. What a sobering challenge to value the unseen here and now. To prioritize the unseen is to find life where God is. Worshiping and praying together as a family is life-giving. Vulnerable, transparent relationships build us up, even testifying like we're doing today to the goodness of God. This in itself builds our faith. We choose to live life from all that is true in this unseen realm, our our redeemedness. We're adopted and loved by Father God. Our spirits are spiritually connected to God's spirit, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we're God's children, Romans 8.16. So this 2 Corinthians 4 passage is the one that explains how we carry the presence of God in common, weak jars of clay, as you said, Howard. 
verse 7 and verse 10 say, we're like common clay jars that carry this glorious treasure within so that this immeasurable power will be seen as God's, not ours. We continually share in the death of Jesus in our own bodies so that the resurrection life of Jesus will be revealed through our humanity. Now I've always known this, that God overrides our weakness. But I never considered that it was his intention to shine through our brokenness. Could this be how God chooses to reveal himself to the world? Not through our success or health, but through our suffering, our struggle, even our decaying bodies. Therefore reclassifying suffering for the believer. So our weakness doesn't disqualify us, it qualifies us. Tragedy doesn't prove there is no God, rather it becomes an opportunity for him to demonstrate his amazing grace for everyone to see. Persecution isn't an unfortunate consequence of believing, but rather God's venue for our witness. So the very thing that we are ashamed of is where God wants to meet us and heal us, so we can talk about it freely and help others in similar situations. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Philip continues, We continually share in the death of Jesus in our own bodies so that the resurrection life of Jesus will be revealed through our humanity. So I guess that premise being hidden in Christ is about being cared for, not out of sight or out of play. And I will add as we draw to a close, in my own journey of sustaining joy, there's been a tender awareness that has grown. It's been a powerful truth much greater than I can understand that as the journey has gotten harder, my sense of the reality and goodness of God has gotten stronger. He is filling me with faith. Trust me, I can't muster that up. And I think it may be because God has been faithful, because he is faithfulness, to all those little yeses that I've said along the journey. I've known him for a long time. I haven't been his star pupil, but he has cultivated some yeses out of me that have grown into more yeses and more yeses, and I am his disciple. And all that faithful investment that God promises to pour into his kids when we say yes, bears fruit. And when the storm comes, you're like, hold on. How'd I get on the rock? I'm on the rock. All those yeses. So start saying yes now. That's one piece I would definitely say. That full Colossians passage that houses that phrase hidden with Christ goes like this. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Amen. So that's why we share. We want Christ to be revealed to the whole world so that we will all share in his glory. We want everyone in the whole world to know that God is real and true and that he's the joy giver regardless of our circumstances. We want to encourage ourselves and everyone else to redirect our focus on the eternal story, the eternal truth that God has given us new life and new hope and new joy through his son Jesus. And that he doesn't just show up in hard times, he knows the way through them and he accompanies us like glued to us, in us, through them. He proves himself faithful. And joy is here. Joy for the whole world. So where are you today? What is your story? We've been ending these opportunities to share with three questions that I just want to leave with you. I'll give a few moments to start some reflection, but would invite you to let them germinate um, as you go home today and to reflect on. The first question, what have I blamed God for? Am I stuck with a weight of disappointment or even accusation that's isolating me from joy? Do I need to repent of pride and ask God to renew my faith and trust in him? Let's take a moment before the Lord. Have I bonded with a false identity? and preferred the role of victim. What is my faith statement? I may have or be experiencing blank, but blank doesn't have me. Let's take a moment. And finally, what would it practically look like for me to shift dependency away from the seen and temporal and find life in the unseen and eternal with eyes fixed on Jesus and not all the things around me? Let's take a moment. Father, I find myself opening my hands with that last question. What is it that I'm holding on to here that stops me from experiencing the full life you've already given me through Jesus? A life that lasts forever. 
how, how do we even uh, begin to understand this gift that we are only experiencing the preface of because the whole 200 volume novel is still to be lived out in the course of eternity and we're just in the opening pages. Lord, lift our spirits into a fresh awareness of the eternal story. We are a part of that that allowed Paul to say these light and momentary troubles during his sojourn here. Father, I do not know what you will do through each of us in this room, but I know that your reach is limitless. So, oh God, would you join us just that little bit more into, into your land of possible and your land of presence and your land of hope? Because when we are with you, there is joy. Thank you. Thank you. You are the truth. We worship you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. first moved into my current house 10 years ago, I had a fascinating experience. The neighbors to one side of me heard through the grapevine that a pastor was moving in next door and they were thrilled. They were eager to chat about the work that I was doing as well as their Catholic faith. There was almost an immediate trust. On the other side, they were cordial and friendly, but upon hearing about the sort of work I did, there was not really a particularly strong reaction one way or the other. They were a little difficult to read. Either way, it was a very different experience from one side of the fence to the other. While our Catholic neighbors moved away a while back, the others remain, and we've established a wonderful rapport with them over the years. We've learned about how much we have in common, with one of them particularly being an avid guitar player. For years, he worked for a company that sells guitar straps, and on more than one occasion, he has dropped off a few freebies for me, which is pretty cool. Hearing the last part of that statement, becoming trusted neighbors. In a world where there is increasing skepticism about the claims and the faith of Christians, Courtright, like all churches, has some work to do in the area of becoming trusted neighbors. We have a really unique position here, being in the center of a neighborhood. There are many churches who are out in rural areas, others who are downtown, others in more commercial areas, and they all serve their own God-given purposes. So for us as Courtright in the middle of Dovercliff Park, in the most central part of this neighborhood, in what way is God calling us to become trusted neighbors? But we need to define our terms so that we can do this well. And since it's only three words, we're going to break it down quite literally word by word. So firstly, why becoming? We chose that word becoming with great intentionality, and it's quite multifaceted in its meaning. Becoming implies that we, at times, have broken trust with our neighbors who don't know Jesus. 
that at times we've been poor witness. And this goes from small things like inadvertently making an unfriendly face at a neighbor passing through our property to at times maybe we've been overzealous or unwise in our evangelistic approach and it's turned people off. And even if we've made great strides with people over the years, becoming implies that our work is not yet finished. There are still more bridges to build, fences to mend, and friendships to be fostered. Becoming implies that our destination hasn't been reached yet. It's an ongoing process of God moving us toward who he's calling us to be. Our second word is trusted. In relationships, we are generally either building trust or we are breaking trust. Or in some cases, there is no trust because there's no real relationship. I discovered a number of years ago that this was the case in some ways for Courtright. We had moved into the neighborhood here and we had perhaps made our presence known in some ways here or there. But after doing a neighborhood-wide poll, the general consensus was our neighbors don't know us, so they don't trust us. For trust to be built, we need to be known. I'm really pleased with some of the initiatives that God has led us to that has helped us to become more known. Between our food security garden, our summer camps, our recently launched Dovercliff Park community food cupboard, outdoor community movie nights, and open gyms, we are providing opportunities for our neighbors to get to know us. These events that bring people onto our property and into our buildings give us a chance to connect, to build relationships, to show hospitality, and as it becomes appropriate, to share our lives and our faith. And that's where trust can be most easily broken. When we become overzealous in evangelizing and we host an event where there's a bit of a bait and switch, or we don't do what we said we would do. Being a trusted church doesn't mean that everyone is going to like everything about us or everything that we believe, but it does mean that they're going to know that we have their best interests at heart and that we are seeking the welfare of our neighborhood. We also can't forget that a crucial part of being, being trusted is not just our neighbors knowing who we are and what we believe and represent, but it's also about us knowing them getting to know their names, little bits of their lives, like whether they prefer Tim Hortons or Starbucks, or the name of their dog, as well as the deeper parts of their lives. To become trusted neighbors is to get to know and be known by our neighbors. And finally, the word neighbor. Jesus and the scriptures have so much to say about the spiritual practice of being a neighbor. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, and not just in word, but in deed. James, the brother of Jesus, even goes so far as to call this the royal law. The neighbors around us matter deeply to God. God loves them. And the exciting part is that this applies to not just Courtright's neighborhood, but your own as well. As much as we hope that you will join us in fostering good community over here in the Dovercliff Park area near Courtright, our prayer is that you are learning to practice this with the houses around you, as well as your apartments, condos, and townhouses. Our neighbors are the people around us wherever we find ourselves, whether at home or at church. So as we refine our theology of neighboring, 
Our hearts should continue to grow for those who live around our church and our homes. And we should make active strides to love them on both a spiritual and a tangible level. In theory, it's not complicated, but it's much harder in practice. And at times this means we'll need to show up to our community events that the church is putting on and to get a little bit out of our comfort zones and have meaningful interactions with those who we haven't yet met. This is where the idea of being a good neighbor allows our imagination to run a little wild. There are countless ways that we can do this well. Imagine what it could look like for us to be in true partnership with the neighborhood around us, to have trust with one another, to be known by one another, to share our lives, and as the Holy Spirit leads us, our faith as well. So we hope that you will join us as we are rooted in Jesus, growing as a community, and becoming trusted neighbors.